I read a stat this, this morning that, um, or this week, that of 2% of golfers, um, only 2% of golfers break, uh, a, break, the, break 80 as a score. And only um, 40% of golfers uh, break 100. Uh, golf is a hard game. As many of you know, I'm a, I'm a, a golfer. Um, this, whenever I go out to play with people, one of the things that happens is, is there's a quick judge of one, one another's games. So if I'm paired with someone I don't know, we go off and we hit off the first tee. By the end of the first hole, you kind of have an understanding of where you fit in the, uh, the, 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 the rankings of golfers. Are you one of those 40% that breaks 100 or the 60% who never does? Are you one of the 2% that breaks 80s or one of the 98% that never does. And when I play, um, I, I play with all different kinds. Some of you, I've played with you. And sometimes people off that first shot or that first hole will begin apologizing immediately for their play. As a, a weaker golfer, they immediately feel a sense of judgment. And I, I feel that too. I feel that when I play with stronger golfers. Um, it is easy to feel a sense of embarrassment if you don't play like you think you should play. And in that moment, if you're a really good golfer, sometimes it's very easy to be disgusted with a weaker one. Like you feel the uh, reproach of their game, like they are going to slow you down or you are going to be waiting or having to give tips to people who aren't very good all throughout the day. And invariably, sometimes when you play with somebody that's really strong and you are weak, like there is this disgust or eye roll. Like there's an eye roll to being who you are as a weaker player. Now I wanna lead, let that lead us into uh, this idea this morning. As we, Paul has been walking us through chapter 14 and now into 15 about the church. And the church has both those who are weak and strong. Now to remind you, the weaker brother, which we talked about last week, the weaker sister is those whose consciences are easily pricked or offended in different ways about God's law or culture or things that exist in the world. They are sensitive. They are maybe have a level of piety and holiness that causes them to refrain from doing certain things or being a part of certain things. And uh, because if they are a part of those things, they feel condemned or judged or feel like they might be sinning or might be violating some aspect of their faith. Today we're going to talk about the strong. Now who are the strong? That is kind of our first point this morning. Notice Paul, in the first verse of chapter 15, considers himself strong. He says, we who are strong. Now in the context of what we've been talking about for the last two weeks, is the strong here are those who are in the Roman church. Remember the Roman church is made up of Jew and Gentile believers. The strong in the Roman church are those who are free to eat of meat, meat of all various sorts and kinds, pork being one, uh, crustaceans being another. They are free also to eat meat that's offered to idols. Paul uh, doesn't make all those specifications here in Romans, but contextually based on Paul and where he's been and what he's been uh, talks about in his letters, the, the strong are those who are free to eat. They're also those who are free to enjoy drink, strong drink. They are free to not celebrate the Passover with the Jew believer who might still celebrate Passover post-Jesus. Now, remember, as Paul enters into this, he says he is one of 
the strong. And Christian freedom is an important part of being a Christian. The strong are those who have a certain level of Christian freedom. Now, the attitude of the strong is what? Well, we read in chapter 14, which we didn't read this morning, is that uh, Paul calls the strong to welcome the weak, but not to quarrel with them. Now, the attitude of the Roman church, the strong Christian in Rome, at least at one level, that they may have invited the weak into their homes or into fellowship and used that for an occasion to quarrel about things that are not essential to following Jesus to the Christian faith. We know something, and you don't know it. So we want to enlighten you. We want to throw our strength around. Second, verse 3 of chapter 14, he says, let no, one who dis- uh, let no one despise the one, let, no- let the one who eats not despise the one who abstains. Here we come back to this idea of disgust or despising. Like, the strong are tempted to uh, despise the weak because the weak are attempting to limit the strong's Christian freedom. They're disgusted. I can't believe you're so weak. It ends in that eye roll. Why? Why does the strong often have this attitude? Well, it comes back to the same thing the weak was doing. It's self-justification. Now, don't miss this. We as a people, even though we've been redeemed by Jesus, are seeking to validate our lives. This is why one gets worked up at the golf course, friends. When they can't hit the ball where they want to go and they see the other person that they're playing with hit the ball where they want it to go, they start to feel judged and their validation of their golf game and maybe even their lives causes them to get worked up. In fact, you know, maybe they get so worked up they start kind of cussing, throwing clubs, hitting, slamming into the ground because they want to emphasize that they should be better than this. It can also be why I don't mind being around a weaker player. Like, there is a sense of power that you feel as someone who feels stronger. And even in that, we are tempted towards self-justification. In our Christian freedom, we think that strong and weak actually are classifications for who's a better Christian. And that's not what Paul's doing here. Just to re-emphasize that to you, remind you that strong and weak are not a classification, according to Paul, of a, a, a moral standing before God. It is simply a way of interacting with cultural issues, extra-biblical issues, things that are not essential in the Christian faith, and how one approaches them. It's very easy, friends, to try to self-justify, to find ways to validate your life. Now, what Paul here says, the strong are free to do all those things. Remember last week I talked about how Paul says he is free to eat. You are free to eat. The weaker brother is free to eat. But the strong is always obligated in their freedom. They are indebted in their freedom to do something better, greater. Then exercise their freedom, they are indebted to love. Love trumps our Christian freedom. And so that leads to the second point this morning. How should the love, how should the strong love the weak? Well, we read last week that they are not to make them stumble in their faith. That word stumble, creating a block or an offense, manufacturing a disturbance, 
It's a military engineering term. A stumbling block or an obstacle is something that is designed to impede the progress or bring ruin to an army that's invading. So in war, you destroy supply lines, you blow up bridges, you uh, bomb manufacturing hubs. Why? Because you hope to create a, uh, a, 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 a stumbling block to impede the progress of the enemy. Paul says the strong should love the weak by not blowing up the bridges of their faith, by not destroying the supply lines of their faith. And Paul uses two words here. One happens by chance. It's an offense that's caused by chance. And the second happens intentionally, and it's more serious. How do they do that to the weak? Remember, we said the weak have sensitive consciences. He says they're grieved by what you eat. They are distressed by your eating and your drinking. Now, we can stick to drinking here. It's an easy one. Now, maybe it's too easy in some instances, but someone sees you having a a drink out. They don't drink, and they, by seeing you, are somewhat, they think, man, you're a really strong Christian. They're offended by you drinking versus you're at a party with someone who's weak. They say they don't want to drink and you continue to cajole and encourage them to drink until they do drink. That's kind of the difference between the two words Paul is using. One is unintentional and one is intentional. In either case, they cause the weaker brother or sister to stumble. In the case of Rome, this might be pork on a table versus urging one to eat pork. If you've seen the Seinfeld, there's an episode about kind of being a kosher Jew in a Seinfeld episode, and they, uh, one of the characters refrains from eating lobster. And George then, because he's mad at that character, cooks lobster in the eggs, doesn't tell her, and she eats lobster. That's kind of what we're talking about here, what Paul's talking about. Now, this is difficult, right? My grandma, I called her Gami, um, was offended by lots of things that I did as a pastor. Like there was things that she thought as a pastor I should never, ever, ever do. And yet when I did those things, she felt pricked in the heart and she would say something to me, often passive aggressively at me about whatever it was that I was doing. And so my response to that was often a wrestling of, okay, how do I teach her that like in the hierarchy of Christianity, Like as a pastor, there is not a difference in me in the sense of a difference between me and her other than in calling um, and in some of the things that God calls me to exhibit as a result of that calling. But the things that she's trying to hold me to aren't part of that exhibit. That's a difficult thing, right? What do we do when someone is offended by the things that we do when Paul says to us, we are free to do those things? Right, It automatically makes us who are strong, who feel this sense of Christian freedom, to then kind of feel almost entitled by that freedom to tell the person who is weaker they are being weak for no good reason. And that causes division and hostility. Now, I have this quote up here, and I think it's helpful for us. This is from Karl Barth. No triumphant freedom of conscience... No triumphant faith to eat all things justifies me. Now think about that for a second with what I talked about earlier. Our freedom, our Christian freedom, and the triumphal kind of acting out on that freedom 
does not justify us. If at the moment of my triumph, Bart says, I have seated myself upon the throne of God and am myself preparing stumbling blocks and occasions of falling instead of, hear this, making room for God's action. Gone then are my faith and my freedom and all my knowledge as though I knew nothing. Those are strong words from Bart, and I think he's right, that when we use our Christian freedom as an occasion to triumph over weaker brothers and sisters, we are seating ourselves upon the throne of God, and instead of being a God who makes room for those that are different from us, who are weaker than us, we instead make them occasions for failing to make room and make them blocks And in that moment, when we do that, our freedom is gone. And the knowledge that we are free to eat this thing or drink this thing or do this thing becomes nothing. Second, Paul says, don't destroy the work of God. We who are strong can quite easily think that this is not a big deal. But Paul says it has the power to destroy The work of God. That should give us, who are strong, great pause. If the debt of love, which Paul talked about in chapter 13, is to be maxed out, then maxing it out on ourselves at the expense of weaker brothers and sisters is anathema. It is not to be. Again, remember, it is more important to be loving than to be proven right. When we invest in our freedom, we are letting what you regard as good to be spoken of evil. And that's point three. How should we love the weak? Don't let the good, that is good, deemed good by God, be spoken of as evil. The good thing is the freedom to eat and drink that freedom will be criticized as wrong if you go about insisting upon your freedom over and against loving. The good gifts of God are then in that moment seen as evil. Doug Moo, uh, the commentator, says the following, Paul is warning strong Christians that their insistence on exercising their freedom in ceremonial matters in the name of Christ can lead those who are spiritually harmed by their behavior to revile the legitimate freedom that Christ has won for them. The strong can so overindulge in their freedom, over and against the weaker brother or sister's conscience, that it drives the weak to forbid even more things that are free for them. I think that's shocking. Our consciences might be clear, and so we are free to look at some theological idea with more nuance Our consciences aren't pricked, but then we thumb our nose at our weaker brother because they don't get it like you get it. And in protection for their faith, they're driven even further to revile legitimate freedoms. Every legalist then, at some level, is further dug in. uh, Their heels are further dug in by the insistence of a more free brother or sister in Christ. Don't let the good be spoken of as evil. How do the strong love the weak? Third, they bear with them. Carrying one another's burdens is how the strong pay the debt of love 
that believers owe each other. Now, love is more than toleration. Toleration is never quite free from disdain and puts the weaker person in danger of being overpowered. Whoever is merely tolerated is not really accepted in his weakness, but is treated in such a way that he is, to be, he is expected to be what he cannot be. I think this is very, quite frankly, uh, often our attitude as the strong. We tolerate. We tolerate instead of love. Instead, Paul says, we are to bear with the failings of the weak. Agape is always more than tolerance. It's always more than condescension. Jesus condescends to us, understands us, empathizes with us, but he also bears our burdens. He, in that condescension, in that toleration, he acts for us. Christians must accept others and help bear the burdens of each other, just as Christ took his burdens upon himself. What that means for us is that strength is a privilege, and it carries with it responsibility. It means indulging the weaker brother or sister's tender conscience, hear this, instead of or at the expense of our own preferences. Now notice that Paul says the strong ought to not please themselves. This means accommodating the request of others rather than prioritizing one's own predilections or opinions. Each of us should please our neighbor. In each of us, there is this sense of both strong and the weak here. Both the strong and the weak should defer their needs and wants and bend them towards the benefit of their neighbor. Next, we are to accept them, but not to change them. We aren't to save them. We are to take the burdens and provide help, but the help is always grounded in accepting them first, not changing them. Third, they are to build them up. Build them up. Build the other up. At its base, the way the strong in the Church of Rome are to build up is to value fellowship more than food. Now remember, food is central to fellowship in the church. Sharing food, having a common meal. This is one of the things that makes Christianity what it is. Jesus gives a meal to explain what his death is all about. It symbolizes his death, but it also is meant to bring the church together. When Paul says in 14.15, do not destroy for the sake of food, he means our perspectives about food and drink. Their fellow believers, the weak, are identified as the work of God the Christian family. So the strong cannot attack the weak, even though the food is clean and edible and good, because they belong to God and they are the work of God, the church. And this building up is built on the foundation of God's work in creating a new people. James Dunn, the commentator, says, to belong to God's building means living out life as part of that building, mutually dependent on God's grace and mutually interdependent on the interlocking relationships by which that building exists and grows. Now, all food is clean, but it's still wrong when one's choice of eating and drinking or celebrating causes another believer to stumble or trip up. Now, let me add to this so we get kind of down and dirty and nitty-gritty here. This applies to politics as well. Now, you may be free to vote candidates, systems, and that rem I'm here to remind you that candidates and systems are all sinful, all fall short of God's intention. 
So when you know another in Christ's body stumbles over your vote, then maybe it's best to live, as Paul says in chapter 4, to live out your conscience and be more reserved and quiet in the way that you do it. Now, let me keep this before you. Disfellowshipping over these things are exactly what Paul is talking about here. And if statistics are true, this is the thing, church, that is dividing the church. And it does not please God. We are destroying fellowship for the sake of votes, for the sake of our comfort, for the sake of not having to exist in a space with someone that we discussed and or judge. We don't have to share a room or a table because we think that it is okay because they voted for that person. Why do we do that? Because we want to justify ourselves. And we might say, as part of that justification, we are standing up for the weak and the vulnerable, depending on who the weak and vulnerable we are that we champion, because not to do so would be the equivalent of heresy at worst or heterodoxy at best. Paul is trying to take the oxygen out of that blazing fire of an argument. He's calling us to live according to our consciences. Liberty and sensitivity are both something that must arise out of faith And he calls us to be humble. Let your principles match your practice without fear or of self-condemnation. Whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, he says, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that is not from faith is sin. This also applies to some of the things that we debated last two years over masks. Our tendency as the strong... In this case, the strong is those who feel they can exist in a world and in a building without a mask on, and our tendency then to try to amp up that strength over and against a weaker brother who is more sensitive for a variety of reasons to wearing a mask. Now, it doesn't, it's not all perfect in all of these illustrations. Even food and drink are not perfect but it is the things that are non-essential to our faith that we attempt to wrangle into making essential. And the strong's temptation is to wrangle their Christian freedom into their being essential. Their ability to nuance over different doctrinal matters, to wrangle that and lasso it into being something that's essential. And thus offending the weaker brother whose consciences are pricked by such things. Now, why are the strong to do this, according to Paul? Why should the strong do this? He says in verse 3, Christ did not please himself, but Christ bared our reproach. You see, Paul appeals the strong to the story of Jesus. The strong should not think that giving into the weak is incompatible with their strength, for Jesus did not do this. He did not seek to please himself. Their tolerance to not eat or drink is not some sort of giving over to error, but instead a living out of the Messiah's self-giving service. Jesus, as the Christ, did not please himself. Jesus, as the king, did not consider his status as excusing himself from the work of bearing a towel. He didn't think strength entitled him to advantage. I want you to see that Jesus, in his strength, did what? What did he do with his strength? It enabled him to empathize with all of us who are weaker than himself 
and for himself to become weak. That's what strength is for. You are free. Your freedom is meant to be used for what? Laying down that freedom. Bearing with, building up. You bear with the weak's sensitive consciences. You, you don't use your strength for occasion to win. Hear me. Culture war is the air we breathe. Church, you are not to engage in that in the church. You don't use your strength to flex about what you can do when someone else can't do. You don't use your strength to shame. You don't use your strength to tear down. You are free and your freedom allows you to walk untainted in a world that you might then lay that down. Bear with the reproach alongside your brother or sister in the place where they feel reproached. Don't turn your uh, Christian liberty into some Epicurean fantasy. Don't say eat, drink, and be merry, for we have a big gospel. You are free from the legalism that once swallowed you, but now you're wandering in the fields of antinomianism where your freedom is not just freedom, but it's freedom to sin. Paul here quotes Psalm 69.9, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. In this psalm, the Messiah is speaking. He is the suffering righteous one who's mocked and despised by the watching world, and he meekly awaits what? Vindication from God. This is meekness. Meekness is strength uh, bridled. Bridled, why? Because it knows it doesn't need strength to destroy because its hope is in God. God alone is the one who can vindicate him and make it right. Michael Bird says Paul taps into the gospel story that Jesus did not shirk from the shame and horror of his crucifixion in order to achieve atonement for God's people. In the same way, if the weak are insulting the strong or even speaking evil of their good freedom, the strong are not to respond in kind. The strong should not shrink back from the need to show patience even to the argumentative weak members. The Messiah's own example should lead them to be self-giving, not to be retaliatory or repay insult for insult. And then Paul says, guess what? This is what the scripture is for. We, we should have our imaginations kindled about how we might live our life in light of what Christ has done. That should give us hope and encouragement and endurance. One theologian says what is at stake is not merely the interpretation of the past, but as clearly here, the role of memories in understanding the present and envisioning the future. Israelite scriptures were battlefields for rival groups bent on securing the victory that preserve their respective identities. Let me read that one more time. Israelite scriptures were battlefields for rival groups bent on securing the victory that would preserve their respective identities. As I read that, I couldn't help but think of our current moment. The scriptures being used in service to rival groups bent on securing victory to preserve their own group's identity. No, Paul says, scripture is a vision for a united people with a shared messianic identity, one that looks humble and meek, one that has a shared experience of the Spirit, and what is the fruit of that Spirit? Well, 
namely love. Scripture is meant to unleash our imaginations so we might learn or envision how to live out this ethic of harmony and unity. This is the ethic of King Jesus, how we might bear with one another, not win one another. How we might live united so that the reproach that the world has for the church becomes each of our own that we each carry in the world. That is our hope. And hope in action looks like the God of endurance and encouragement granting us the gift of living in harmony with one another. And with accord, he says, with Jesus, that with one voice we might glorify God. This is the first prayer in Romans since chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. And it's both intercession and indirect exhortation, right? You love that when pastors kind of like pray and they're intercessing for you, but then they're also preaching a sermon to you. That's what Paul's doing here. And at the core of that prayer is that God would grant them unity, not uniformity, but unity in the midst of difference and opinion. He is not saying that the weak need to become strong. He is calling them to have unity in the midst of difference. He wants more than a list of agreed-upon ideas. Like, a list of agreed-upon ideas is fine, but it's less than what Paul has in mind. He wants them to have the same mind that is in Christ Jesus, patterned after Jesus. This is the word accord, where they have consensus and concord where it matters, that they come together then where it matters with one voice to glorify God, that they welcome one another, strong and weak, welcoming strong brother or sister and not shaking your head and judging them, welcoming the weak friend and not rolling your eyes at them in disgust, but welcoming them, making room for them around your table giving your attunement to them, turning your face towards them, being present to them. This brings God glory. And in the presence of that, then laying down your life for them because that's what Jesus did for us. It's more than your scruples and more than your freedom of conscience, more than doing the pious things that you think praises and glorifies God, living according to your convictions, keeping your days and not doing that thing, more than enjoying that thing as a gift and thanking God for it, more than eating and drinking in faith, it's more than that that God is, is inviting us to. He's inviting us to taking upon the mantle of Jesus and welcoming strong or weak because that brings God glory. More glory than you abstaining from uh, food or drink and more glory than you exercising your freedom and thanking God for what you're eating and drinking. It, gives, it puts skin on what it means to be the church. It enfleshes it. I want you to think about, in our moment, how truly countercultural that is. Now, most of you know Charlie Bursai. Now, Charlie is one of your elders. And um, Charlie came to this church how long ago, Charlie? A long time ago. More than that. A long time ago. He moved here to be with his family after the death of his beloved wife. And when Charlie came to this church, and to me, he had some reservations, to say the least. And Charlie comes from a church that acts and operates at PCA church. It's in Georgia. I talked about his church having a graveyard out front. It's a lot different than our church in a lot of different ways. In, in my point of view, 
I would consider a lot of the views from where Charlie came from in his church in Atlanta as being my weaker brother. They have more uh, convictions. Their consciences have a, uh, a, more, a, a greater tendency to be sensitive to different matters of faith and practice. Do you agree with that, Charlie? In fact, this week we had lunch. Charlie had a burrito. I had carne nevada. And uh, we talked about how, like, he has a view of creation that's literal six days. I don't have that view. Not that I don't think that it can be true. So if you want to get mad at me today about this view, we can have a discussion about it. But I believe Genesis isn't concerned with that. If you sat with us in our Genesis series, you know that. That's not the question that Genesis is seeking to ask. Um, I believe in what's called a framework view. And Charlie and I talked about how that difference is just one difference. Where in the PCA, we are, whole, we are allowed to hold such differences and to hold them lightly. You see, Charlie and I have developed an incredibly strong bond as brothers in Jesus. Like, there's lots of things that are happening right now in the PCA that we would disagree on. There's different things of faith and practice we would disagree on. Now, we... We wouldn't disagree on eating meat and having a beer at all. But there's other things we would disagree on and do disagree on. But here's what's happened between us. Because of God's kindness towards us, his mercy, that we have sought over and over again to listen, to pursue, to lay down our rights and privileges for one another in that seeking to love each other. I don't like to talk about myself or, and I know Charlie doesn't like to talk about himself as a hero of the story, but the hero of that story is God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. That's what the Spirit can do. He can bring unity in the midst of difference, where we still hold strong views about the things that we hold strong views about, but we are deeply united and we are deeply connected and committed to each other and to this church together, and to lead and shepherd you as as God's people. That's the beauty of being the church. And if he and I can do it, this is what we laughed about over lunch, man, y'all can do it. And beyond that, the PCA can do it in the midst of our strife and difficulty. That is The hope of all of that is not in our story. It's in what Jesus has done in our story. And that's the hope for you this morning. The one who bared your reproach, took on your insult, pursued you as other, as enemy. This is the thing Paul talks about over and over again in the book of Romans. You were an enemy. And God, in his mercy and grace, gave you an incongruent gift. So the ethic of the church is to do the same in its daily life together, in opening up its home together, and eating meals together, in having disagreements about faith, practice, and theology together. We should do that. May God give us mercy in that work. Let's pray. God, we ask you to do uh, that, to have mercy on us. God, that we would not be a people who seeks uh, to exercise our strength in such a way that it alienates and destroys our Christian brother, that we would not seek to throw around our weakness 
in ways that judge our stronger brothers and sisters, but instead that we would be your people living out the ethic of love and seeking to max out our debt with a card that is unlimited for all the world to see. Give us grace, we pray in that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's stand together and sing a song of response. Thank mm-hmm. you.